Getting Better Healthcare is brought to you in part by Leo Pharma. Every American is acutely aware of the issues surrounding our healthcare system. We know miracles can happen, but we find ourselves bombarded by conflicting information and are uncertain of what and whom we can trust. We have some of the best medical care in the world for those who can afford it. Incredible new drugs that change people's lives but can be very costly. Many of the best doctors the world has ever seen, but not all are perfect. That's why Dr. Steve Feldman created the show, Getting Better Healthcare, to help walk us through the labyrinth, helping us understand how to take better care of ourselves and to better understand the challenges, issues, controversies, and complexities of our healthcare system as it exists and as it could be. For better healthcare and a better healthcare system, listen to the doctor. Now, here's Steve. Welcome to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Feldman, founder of the DrScore.com physician rating website. On today's program, we're going to explore medical care that doesn't work. We can do miraculous procedures, but do they always accomplish something? We can operate and open the vessels of the heart, but do patients live longer? To discuss this with us today, we have Dr. Norton Hadler, a graduate of Yale College and the Harvard Medical School. He trained at the Massachusetts General Hospital, the National Institutes of Health, and the Clinical Research Center in London. He's a brilliant physician, board certified in internal medicine, rheumatology, allergy and immunology, and geriatrics, and he's professor of medicine and microbiology and immunology at the University of North Carolina, what we call UNC. Dr. Hadler's author of Worried Sick, A Prescription for Health in an Overtreated America, as well as the book Stabbed in the Back, Confronting Back Pain in an Overtreated Society, and his most recent work, Rethinking Aging, Growing Old and Living Well in an Overtreated Society. Dr. Hadler, thank you so much for joining us on the program today. You've written some very interesting things about um, some of the useless things happening in our medical health system. Let's just start off with some basic information about our health care system. Is the whole thing just a total waste of time? Uh, no, obviously not. Um, they're, they're, uh, we all labor under the assumption that we have the best health care system in the world, uh, and that is, by anybody's definition of best, a falsehood. We um, have some terrible outcome data, meaning the health of our population lags that of many other resource-advantaged countries. And we have this extraordinarily dramatic uh, difference between us and all others in the expenditure of our resources. So the, the bang for the buck is atrocious. In fact, it's unconscionable. Uh, about a year or so ago, I lectured the... Uh, the keynote of the founding meeting of the Swiss Society of Health Insurance, and I said to them that, ladies and gentlemen, you have the second most irrational health care delivery system in the world, and you'll never catch the United States. So, so when you realize the tremendous discordance between our, the health of our population and the tremendous amount of money that's being poured into this thing called the health delivery system, and on top of that, realize that it is inaccessible to a a tremendous and growing percentage of the population, you have to step, step back and say, wait a minute, what are we really doing here? And, and all of us are used to hearing this conversation because it's part of the health care reform debate, and it's usually played out at the level of efficiency. Uh, 
Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that level of debate. People are saying, if only we did it better, if only the quality was improved, if only we were paper-free, and if only we had better facilities, then we could deliver this vaunted care at far less cost. And certainly that's true, but that's not the argument I've been making for about a decade now. In fact, I shifted my career focus a bit because I found what, what is happening in the American healthcare system unconscionable. And, and I began to realize early on that the only hope we had for reform is if I could teach the population at large how to ask questions like, is this really good for me? Because if, if what we're offering as a health care delivery system doesn't advantage you, I don't care how efficiently we do it, how cheaply we do it, or how paper-free we do it. If it doesn't work, we shouldn't do it. Very simple principle. So one of the reasons our health care system has poor outcomes is because, well, some of the people going into the medical side of our health system just haven't been taking care of themselves. Another reason our outcomes are poor is because people don't have accessibility to the, you know, care that, that, that modern technology that we have available to patients. But if you're well insured and you, um, you need, a, you know, a high-tech procedure, for example, a cabbage, you can get right in. You don't have to wait or anything. Actually, for some of the more profitable procedures, you don't have to be that well insured. Uh, let, let me go back to your assertions um, a little bit. It, it turns out that, that you're right about the stratification of our society determining health outcomes, but that has relatively little to do with medical technology. It has much more to do with one station in life. And instead of blaming these people for, for their station in life, we ought to ask whether or not they have other options. So about 80% of our mortal hazard, of, of the likelihood of dying before our time, it doesn't relate to the typical biomedical disease measures or the typical biomedical advice. It relates much more to whether you feel disaffected and whether you're disavowed in our society and, and um, your relative income status and what the industrial psychologists call flow, which is whether or not life is awful. The, the more you think life is awful, the, more, the sooner you will die from something. Uh, it's called all-cause mortality. And that's actually one of the themes of all the books I've been writing. It's, um, it's something we don't talk enough about in America, although it is, the assertion is supported by an extraordinarily robust and compelling literature. Uh, it is um, no mystery for anybody who's interested in epidemiology. I think the British investigators have probably been leading the world, but we have plenty of, of very productive investigators in this country. Uh, it's called Social Epidemiology in America. It's called Life Course Epidemiology in Britain. It accounts for about 80% of the mortal hazard, and you don't hear about it because there's no pill that'll fix it. There's nothing that's profitable that'll fix it. What will fix it is how we treat each other in our society. All right. I want to come back to this towards the end of our discussion. I want to focus first on um, what I was hoping to lead you towards was 
the value of our medical technologies. So um, clearly we should be talking about the 80%, and we will. But let's talk about the modern technologies that America is so good at giving. Um, for example, cabbages. If I, if, if I need a cabbage, I can get one relatively easily. Uh, you know, the, the biggest advance in, in the past 50 years is not the, the miracle of the week or the great technological advances of genomics. The biggest advance of, of my lifetime in medicine is our ability to ask whether or not any particular good idea really helps my patient. And, and that's not, uh, although there were glimmers of that in the 12th century, most of that is post-World War II. In fact, most of that approach is after 1960. And what we have are parallel with the, the, the drumbeats and the advances and the miracles and the magic is a large literature looking at whether or not the miracles are really miracles. Now, that literature, that science of testing efficacy is also evolving. It, it is a relatively new science, and it, it, we are learning how to do it better. But one of the best examples is the coronary artery bypass graft, which uh, was introduced really in the late 60s, early 70s, because it was a good idea, and we, we as a medical profession, our surgical colleagues, were capable of doing this without killing people. So everybody said, well, gee whiz, you've got a, bl a blockage in your artery, and I've got a surgeon who can do something about the blockage. If you do something about the blockage, the patient should be better. This is terrific. What, this is, you know, like a modern medical miracle. Well, it was in terms of technology, including the fact that it could be done. You've got to realize in the 60s, if you took people ill with active coronary artery disease through an appendectomy, it was considered high risk. In the 50s, it was very high risk. In the 70s, all of a sudden, we were taking people with active coronary artery disease through heart surgery, and the vast majority, well over 90%, depending how sick they were in the beginning, survived the procedure. They didn't survive the procedure smiling. About half of them were depressed, and about a third of them had easy-to-measure memory loss at one year, but at least they survived this procedure, and everybody thought it was wonderful because there was a blockage that now was bypassed. Uh, to our credit, uh, instead of saying we're not going to let everybody have these procedures uh, without some evidence that they actually work. They do work for the coronary artery for a short time, but do they work for the patient? If your coronary artery is unblocked and you die at the same time or have all the same complications, that's not considered an advance. Mm -hmm. So there were three major trials that were set up, randomized control trials, which is an experiment, which is the best way to ask the question, does it really work? And in those three major randomized trials, one of which went on for 11 years, uh, bypass grafting was compared to medical therapy of the day. And um, the basic outcome was that for 97% of, of people who had active coronary artery disease who went, underwent bypass, the only thing that was being offered was surgical complication. There was absolutely no important improvement that was demonstrable in terms of longevity, their next heart attack, anything really important. And that small percentage, the 3% that were advantaged, were um, an interesting subset that sort of fueled the notion, see, it can work in somebody. 
And, and because of the violence of bypass graft, uh, a clever Swiss cardiologist invented angioplasty. I mean, you've got a block there. Why not put in a balloon and bust it open? Sort of the way you would do with rotor rooter yeah. in your plumbing. Uh, all of us shivered when that happened because with rotor rooter, when you, um, you do something about your plumbing, everything goes downstream and goes to the sewer system. That's fine. But when it goes downstream in your coronary arteries, that's not so fine. It's going downstream into the small vessels that you need to feed the muscle. So it was a very scary thing. It's amazing that it doesn't cause more grief than it does, although some of us think actually it does cause heart attacks. But more importantly, we now have five randomized controlled trials that say the only thing you get for getting your angioplasty or your angioplasty with a stent, which is used to keep it open after they bust open the blockage, is a hospital bill. It does absolutely nothing for your likelihood of a of your next heart attack or your survival. And the, the arguments that you're symptomatically better are on the most thin of ice. So here's this enormous part of a, a modern American miracle, coronary artery bypass grafts and angioplasties and stents, that for almost all, well, for all subsets that have been studied, uh, with this one tiny exception, offers nothing. Yet we do a tremendous number of them, probably a million a year. So, yeah, there, there are reasons for me to say, what are we doing to this population? By the way, the, the, the cost, which I never talk about in all these books, um, uh, is, uh, is impressive. It's a goodly percentage of the so-called health care dollar. And as I said in, in the, the most recent book, the one that was released last week, called Rethinking Aging, where I look at over-treatment in people who are over age 60, uh, I, I consider it absolutely outrageous that anyone is offered uh, interventional cardiology for active coronary artery disease when all the data says that we're not helping them. So to assess whether a medical technology works or not, you need to do a control trial. You need to ask do the patients, not just on some outcome like does it fix the artery, but on some more meaningful outcome of quality of life or death, whether the whether people are improved or not relative to the control group? Yeah, you work, you're walking into a couple of the more important um, controversies, intellectual demands of, of the need for randomized controlled trials. Uh, the ones I mentioned had hard outcomes that were being followed. Did you have another heart attack and did you die? Uh, those are hard outcomes. You're asking about quality of life. That's a softer outcome. And softer outcomes are much more difficult to follow. Uh, how do you measure softer outcomes following uh, an interventional cardiology procedure? Uh, do you have less pain? Do you... Um, uh, have a much more active employment history? Do you have a much more participatory history in your family or your marriage? And those are much more difficult to study. It's interesting how disappointing the data has been uh, when you compare medical therapy with surgery for, for these softer outcomes, these quality outcomes, because one predicts that you, you, would, you would see 
a benefit from just the surgical act. It's very hard to undergo these horrifying things without anticipating benefit, particularly in our culture where you're told up front that you ought to feel better, and without feeling like a survivor, and without, if you're not better, blaming the fact not that it was a bad procedure, but that your disease was too bad. And there are, for quality of life, there is one study that was done correctly for coronary artery bypass grafts, an early version of them, where all the patients were put to sleep by an anesthesiologist, and all of them had a skin incision, and only half of them had the procedure. And the outcome being measured was chest pain, angina. And the answer was you were as likely to have a decrease in angina if you had the sham procedure as if you had the putatively active procedure. Uh, that's the way to test that. Uh, it's a very difficult issue in terms of the ethics of randomized controlled trials. Are we allowed to do sham surgery? And that's a whole other discussion that we could save for another day. Uh, I would rather we have a randomized controlled trial with sham surgery than allow all kinds of people to have a procedure that is supposed to be an active procedure, but in fact is a sham procedure. Ah, uh-huh. that's a very good way to look at it. So well, there, there, um, there are important debates on that. For the interventional cardiology world, it turns out, and, and for knee arthroscopy, and for a fair amount of spine surgery, if you go away from as medicalized a society as we are and go to um, countries that have far better health statistics like Scandinavia and France and the like, you can do randomized controlled trials that don't have sham limbs that actually compare aggressive conservative therapy with aggressive interventional therapy and for spine surgery, knee arthroscopy, um, interventional cardiology, you do as well taking pills as you do letting somebody do violence to your coronary arteries. In our country, by the way, for knee arthroscopy, we have a sham procedure. There was a study done on elderly men who had knee pain in the setting of osteoarthritis, and they all underwent anesthesia, and they all had an arthroscope put into their knee, and in half of them, the arthroscope was removed with nothing having been done, and the other half, the so-called good thing to do of the week, was done. And if anything, the pay, there was no important difference. There was no statistically significant difference. If anything, the people who had the sham procedure had less pain. So it is possible to do these things. It's been done uh, with sham procedures in a couple of settings. Uh, there's no reason that we're doing everything that we're doing to people uh, without good evidence that they're better off for it particularly when we have this rich, compelling data set that says a lot of the things that are very commonly done that are particularly profitable and require our high-tech world actually don't work. Well, I hate to end today's show on such a down note, but we're going to pick things back up with Dr. Hadler next week. We'll discuss some of the forms of medical care that do work, some common things that people should try to avoid, and then some more philosophical issues about our healthcare system and how people can bit live uh, a healthier, longer existence. For more details on Dr. Hadler's views, I would encourage you to uh, read his book, Rethinking Aging, Growing Old and Living Well in an Overtreated Society, that was just published 
by the University of North Carolina Press. I'll provide a link to the book on the Getting Better Healthcare website. I hope you'll join us for more of Dr. Hadler next week. Our theme music is by the incomparable Michael Zioli. Our show is brought to you in part by Leo Pharma. Until next time, I wish you the very best of health. Thanks for listening to the show today. Remember to go to DrScore.com to get and give feedback about your doctor and to read others' recommendations about doctors in your area. It's a way to choose your path to healthcare empowerment. That's D-R-S-C-O-R-E.com, DrScore.com. And we'll see you next week right here on Getting Better Healthcare.